Throughout the state and here in Northeast Ohio, animal shelters say they are in crisis mode, dealing with a deluge of unwanted dogs, cats, and other animals that have been surrendered by owners, many of whom took on a new pet during the pandemic when they were quarantining at home, but in the years following have found they can no longer care for the animal. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. This hour, we'll talk about this issue with the Portage Animal Protection League, the Stark County Humane Society, the Dog Warden for Holmes County, and the Rescue Village in Geauga County. We'll hear about how dire the problem is for overcrowded shelters and what should be done. Later in the show, author Brandi Scalace joins us to talk about her new book, The Framed Women of Ardmore House. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideas Room Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for joining us and a good morning to you. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people opened their homes and hearts to pets during quarantine. At the time, Wired Magazine called it the feel-good pandemic story you need right now. But over the last few years, after companies called people back into the office, many of those animals have been surrendered back to animal shelters. This week, the Ohio Division of Wildlife is asking for the public's help after 13 dogs were found abandoned near a shooting range in Delaware County near Columbus. After it took the county dog warden and state workers two days to round up all the dogs, Warden Mitchell Garrett said, don't do that. Don't just abandon your pet's places. It's against the law. Animal shelters all over the state have said they are in crisis due to overcrowding, and some in Northeast Ohio have said they may need to resort to euthanasia as a temporary solution. We're going to start today's show by talking about the situation with local animal organizations. Jo- joining us by phone is Shallon Lowry, the executive director of the Portage Animal Protection League. Shallon, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by Jackie Godbay, Executive Director of the Stark County Humane Society. Jackie, thanks for calling in. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Beam joins us. He is the dog warden for Holmes County. Jonathan, glad you could join us. Good morning. I appreciate the opportunity. And as our sole guest in the studio, sitting across the table, we have Ken Clark, CEO of Rescue Village in Geauga County. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having us all here. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you about this really important topic. We wanted to let you know we're no longer using our 216 phone number because of technical issues, but the 866 number is toll-free. It's 866-578-0903, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. All right, so let's find out what's happening in Portage County. Shallon, did you see a lot of pets being adopted in Portage County during the beginning of the pandemic? And did it spark concern in you at the time? Uh, We did see a lot of pets being adopted uh, in Portage County. And at the time, like everyone, I think we were just surprised um, that during the pandemic, you know, with all of the fear that was happening, that people were adopting so many animals. You just hope it maintains, right? And then sort of to your point about this whole story, then you start to see more animals coming back or coming in or being abandoned. 
And Jackie, what about in Stark County? There were some animal shelters across the country who actually ran out of adoptable pets in 2020, but it wasn't something that lasted. Right. During 2020 with the pandemic, we were still doing adoptions. We were doing them virtual and using every ounce of wit that we had to make those adoptions possible to where we weren't full. We were running low and then as the pandemic came to an end, we're finding ourselves in post-COVID crisis with just more animals than we can facilitate. Jonathan, we mentioned the horrific incident involving 13 abandoned dogs in Delaware County and the dog warden and other workers who had to work for two days to round up these animals. So what's involved in rescuing abandoned animals like you might have to do in Holmes County? Um, I mean, so you always... You know, it's very interesting when you when you go out for a stray dog. Um, obviously, every dog is an own dog, um, whether it is taken somewhere and dumped or whether it is a stray and then the owner just doesn't bother to follow up and, and get it back home. Um, there's, you know, two different ways to look at it. Um, so when we go out, <clears throat> a lot of times it will be two or three dogs. Um, and that can be kind of, you know, kind of suspicious as to what, you know, what's going on, especially if they're found, you know, we got, we're a small rural county. So, um, if dogs are found out in the middle of nowhere, um, and you know, no one around there has got dogs registered like that. So they come here in the, to the shelter and, and we have to hold them for the 72 hours before we evaluate them and, and get them placed into home. So, um, there's definitely a process to getting, you know, picking up strays, abandoned dogs, and then getting them into homes. And Jonathan, remind us of the law when it comes to um, dealing with animals. Um, so as far as abandonment, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty vague, um, but it's basically a person shall not abandon, um, abandon a companion animal. Um, so uh, abandonment can be defined per county, um, you know, prosecutor, what, what that looks like. Um, when you, when a general person might think of abandonment as, you know, this person drove off and threw the dog out of the car and, and left. Um, you know, some say that abandonment is, you know, you see your dog at the shelter and you refuse to come pick it up um, because you don't want it anymore. Um, at that point, you're just, you know, this individual is using the system and basically abandoning their dog. Uh, however, the dog is cared for. Um, so no harm done. Right. 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 So, Ken, in Geauga County, the dog warden, Matthew Granita, said there was a 50 percent drop statewide in stray dogs when the pandemic first started, but he's seen an uptick in stray dogs of 40% more in 2023 than the year before. So what's happening there and how is that uh, actualizing in your shelter? So our shelter, we saw a 4% increase in adoptions and intake versus pre-pandemic. We saw a stabilization after that. And then last year, our adoptions were up 9% and our intake was up also an awful lot. So um, we do a lot of looking at, um, I don't know if, I'm sure everybody on the phone is contributing to Shelter Animals Count, which is a national consortium that's counting what's happening statistically in shelters so that we can be guided by the facts and also what's going on in our own shelters. And um, we've been really pushing against, like, what are we seeing? What are we hearing? How are we hearing it in regards to, is there overcrowding? Is there not overcrowding? Is it really a, dependent on the kind of shelter you are? or if you're a taxpayer-supported dog warden or shelter versus a place like Rescue Village, which is a limited intake institution, and it has been that way for 50 years. So what's your assessment of the situation in Geauga County now when it comes to surrendered animals, uh, the capacity of shelters, yours sure. in particular? Yeah. 
So we see about 60% of our animals coming in from owner surrender mm. and strays. Um, if you talk about strays with us, it's 80% of our strays are cats. Um, and then the rest of what we do is we are trying to draw from dog wardens in like Mahoning or Trumbull County to the far east of us where they are seeing that overcrowding uh, because of the way they're structured and their need to take animals because they're taxpayer supported. And so are you able to assist those shelters? Absolutely. Okay. We have 34 different partners that we use. And are you feeling at all burdened where you are by we've, the numbers? We've been focusing a lot on our operational excellence, um, which means how do we do things better and not kill ourselves doing it. So last year we saw pre-pandemic numbers hit our shelter, and, but it didn't, it didn't hurt. We were able to figure it out. We had over 2,300 surgeries. Our vets see, you know, each animal is probably 6,000 times. There are 28,000 dog walks that happened. It's just there's a lot of you just have to, like, kind of get into the groove and make it happen. So going back to to uh, Shellen in Portage, uh, tell us about what your current status is when it comes to the number of animals and your bandwidth and capacity to uh, care for them or maybe in turn find future homes for them. So, you know, for us, and, I, you know, like Ken said, we, we definitely saw an increase in adoptions last year, but we also saw an intake uh, increase. So our adoptions were up about 30%, which was amazing, um, but the number of animals coming through our doors was also up. Uh, and, and like Rescue Village, we also assist other local shelters who are overcrowded and at risk for euthanizing animals. So if we have space, we help. Um, you know, we, we help a lot of other shelters locally. You know, but the other thing is that it's not just the pandemic, right? So it, it's the pandemic, but it's inflation. It's the cost of doing business. It's the cost of supplies. You know, our shelter probably has doubled the cost of the care for animals just over the last year or two with, wow. with the cost rising. So, you know, we're kind of not in a vacuum. It's not just COVID. It's, it's all the things that have sort of come after that are impacting shelters. Um, and so we continue to have good adoptions. And, you know, we're in taking animals that really need us, which is, you know, our mission. Um, but it has become much harder, and we're seeing more emergencies, more abandonments. Um, you know, we don't have a veterinarian on staff like some of the other shelters do, so we're sourcing out our animals just like a person would, you know, calling to make appointments. Wow. That's and when not an easy when, process as a dog owner, I know. Right, right. And, and there is a veterinary shortage. So when that's happening, mm. too, it also delays our ability to get care for animals until we end up at emergency vets where it's much more expensive. So there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle. And Jackie, in Stark County, can I, I get a present-day assessment of what things are looking like for you when it comes to uh, animal capacity and, and, and um, bandwidth to, to be able to take care of these animals? We normally always run at full capacity, but like the others are saying, we try to maintain the capacity for care so that we're not burning our staff out and overpopulating so that our five freedoms are affected by that. So we do have a veterinarian on staff, but we do transport for spay and neuter. And it's not just all post-COVID for intakes and outtakes. It's also a lot of people during COVID got animals to spend that time with, but did not have access to the veterinarian care like we do where you can go and walk into the office. You were pulling up. They were coming out. So they were so overwhelmed. We really weren't seeing a lot of owned animals at that time getting spayed or neutered. And I think it's kind of the tumble effect where people got these pets two or three years ago and they've now had litters 
and aren't realizing the importance of spaying and neutering and are just becoming overrun and then looking to the shelters or unfortunately just dropping them off. So we're seeing a lot of abandonment, a lot of evictions, people that are moving and just leaving the pets in our shelter. If you're losing your home for eviction or foreclosure, if we can verify that on a court docket, we take your animals at no charge, no expense, just verify that and we will take them. We just beg everyone, please don't leave them in that locked house because that makes it very difficult for us to get in with the authorities to remove them. And if neighbors don't report it or the landlord don't, we're seeing a crisis as far as animals left in these properties. And I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, Jackie, but what's the what's problematic about that, about just leaving your animal in, in, in a structure you're no longer uh, occupying? Well, the animals, depending on you to go outside to go to the restroom, that food and water, if your neighbors don't notice it, or a lot of times the neighbors are afraid to get involved and make that phone call, and the landlord don't realize that he gave you 30 days to leave, but you left in three, by the time we're getting in there, the animals are in emergency need of medical care and food and water. I mean, we can't just go, I wish we could go break down the doors and just go in and remove them. But you have to get that search warrant or you have to get that landlord to let you in that property. So that takes time. And so we beg everybody, if you know this is coming, call us. We'll work with you. We'll help you. If you are overrun with a lot of cats or dogs, it's easier for us to take three to seven a week versus 30 at one time. That way we can get them in, get their vaccines, get them vet checked, get them spayed or neutered, get them microchipped and get them up for adoption without completely overpopulating our shelter. It gives us a little chance to work through what you have and not overrun our animal care attendants. With that, we will take a break and uh, return on the other side of the break with more on this conversation about how our area animal shelters are doing of recent when it comes to uh, the amount of dogs, cats, and others that are either being surrendered or given up. I'm Jenny Hamill. This is The Sound of Ideas. We'll be right back. It's The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for staying with us. We are currently talking about animal shelters and the uh, fact that there's a lot of animals that are being surrendered in part because of pet owners that acquired new pets during the pandemic or just find themselves not being able to care for their animal anymore. Shellen Lowry, Executive Director of Portage Animal Protection League, is here. Jackie Godbay with the Stark County Humane Society joins me. Jonathan Beam, dog warden for Holmes County, is here. And Ken Clark, CEO of Rescue Village in Geauga County, uh, also joins me. Uh, If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Please call us on the toll-free number, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org. You can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So I was curious, Jonathan, when when you're talking about kind of the work that you do as a dog warden, what do you think the trickle-down effect is uh, when it comes to shelters being, let's say, at capacity or just having so much work when it comes to an intake of animals that their staff is is feeling burdened and, um, you know, kind of burnt out. Uh, what is the trickle-down effect kind of in the communities out on the streets when it comes to strays? 
So, you know, here in Holmes County, that, that's the one thing that we, we always want to be able to provide that service is um, strays running around. So it's, I mean, it's our job um, to make sure that uh, those strays aren't running around. So um, when it comes to overcrowding, um, you get closer and closer to us not being able to provide that service. And that's always when um, euthanasia has to become a reality um, because we can't, we can't have dogs, you know, roaming the streets and running around. So um, when we know that we're getting close to capacity, it, it just brings a sense of stress, um, you know, uh, and even, you know, employees coming in to work and, you know, having a kennel full of dogs. Um, and mind you, we're a, you know, pretty small operation, 14 kennels for our, our county. Wow. Um, and most days we're, especially in 2023, we're operating at, at capacity. I think our um, daily average daily count was 13 point some dogs. Um, at any given time that you would walk in, that's kind of how many dogs you would see. Um, so, you know, we really don't want to be at a place where um, we are saying, you got to hang on to the stray dog, we don't have room for it, or just let the dog go. Um, and that would that would never happen in our county. And we would have to make tough decisions to make that sure that doesn't happen because any dog running loose um, is not is not a good situation for, um, for anybody. I mean, you look at the number of livestock kills we deal with in a, in any given year, um, it's an opportunity for that dog to get into trouble, be exposed to, to rabies, to other diseases and things like that. And that's not something we want for our county. I, I wanted to ask you, Ken, uh, you, you were making a point during the break about the role of the humane societies and even geographically the location. Can you can you make that point to our listeners? Yeah. So Ohio has uh, counties, and in order to be a humane society, you need to step up and uh, incorporate with the state of Ohio. Um, that humane society then gets powers. It gets uh, law enforcement powers and also gets the responsibility of helping people and their pets and their community. Um, you, if you think about your humane society, it's kind of like the county sheriff's department or the county hospital. It's a resource that the community is going to need that is never going to, weigh, is going to go away as long as there's people and pets in the area where you're living. And I know the pandemic gets a lot of attention, and, and, and certainly it should because it really, uh, really hit a lot of shelters and dog wardens and all of this in this industry uh, really hard. But before the pandemic and for decades before that, and I would say for decades in the future, we are going to have this problem because people and pets need help. And so it's a humane society's job and a dog warden's job to, to help in that area. So I wouldn't expect that we were going to see a decrease in numbers if our populations increase. We're going to see an increase in numbers. Let's go ahead and take a call from John calling in from Frasiesburg. John, good morning. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Um, I live on a farm down here, and so animal rights are something I've been an, an advocate of since I was a boy, right? Um, just had a question. Um, abandoning pet, pets, unless somebody went to the hospital, right? Um, that's a despicable act when you leave them behind locked doors. So I just wondered what, um, what the response has been from the judicial community in your areas uh, about people to do that because I think that they ought to be held accountable. So again, this uh, thanks for the call and and the question, John. Um, again, talking about where the law stands when someone does abandon an an animal. Ken, do you have the answer for that? Well, I'm I'm also in my role a humane officer for um, the county of Geauga, and abandoning an animal is considered abuse. And, and the Ohio law, it's under 1717 of the Ohio Revised Code, 
where um, it really establishes what abuse is, what torture is, what abandonment is. And then it's going to be your local humane society, your dog warden, or your sheriff's offices that can prosecute you. They can press charges against you and take you to court. We got an email from Sarah who says, I'm interested in adopting a dog, but I'd like to visit with a large number of dogs before making a decision. What are the opportunities are there for this? Uh, Jackie, why don't we let you, um, from your vantage point, answer that question? Okay. Our shelter is open six days a week for the public to come in. Um, You stop in, check in at the front desk. You can walk through. Once you see a few that you may be interested in, we team you up with one one of our animal adoption staff that can help you pick the right pet for you so we're here monday tuesday thursday friday 11 to 5 and saturday and sunday 11 to 4 we try to have convenient hours so that the community can come in and we probably have about 40 to 50 dogs up for adoption at a time and how do you screen or vet these animals and kind of make sure that they're appropriate for adoption? Or how do you specify, um, you know, this kind of dog or cat might be good with this kind of owner? So kind of know what you're getting into if you're interested in this particular pet. Um, For us, we do get owner guardian surrender. So we always try to ask the, you know, back questions. Are they good with children? Are they good with other animals? Are they housebroke? Any special needs? Anything like that. If a stray comes in, our facility you know we're starting with a blank page so it's up to us to create their story so as our animal care attendants and our volunteers are working with them we track that and then if the family does come in and we get them out and we can add more to that like how did they do with the children how did they do with the other dogs we try to create their story here so that's the best you can do especially with the strays is you're learning them as you go so depending on If there's kids in the home, other animals, you know, what's going to fit your family and your needs? And that's why we have the adoption staff that works one-on-one with the families or the individuals coming in to look to adopt. Shallon, with the Portage Animal Protection League, can you add to what Jackie's saying about uh, ability for the general public that might be interested in adopting an animal to find out what's out there, what's appropriate for them, and to kind of figure out, am I an appropriate pet owner? Because that is, uh, you know, obviously a huge responsibility. Sure. Yeah, I would say we're similar um, to what Jackie said in in terms of kind of the one-on-one experience and helping us, uh, us helping them, you know, pick out an animal that might be the right fit. Obviously, some of that comes from conversation. Some of it comes from interaction with the actual animals. Um, so you might see a couple that you like, and we do not take people through the kennel. Um, one of the things that COVID did show us <laughs> that was a positive thing was that, you know, taking people back to the kennel 20, 30, whatever times a day really is stressful for the dogs. You know, they, someone comes back, they all bark, they all jump. Um, they, some of them have, you know, stranger issues. Some of them are fearful. So kind of continuing to do that to them regularly to show them to people uh, was something we thought would we should stop. However, it doesn't mean you can't meet animals. It means that we're going to show you what we have available. We're going to talk to you about what you're looking for, and we're going to go, oh, gosh, well, these three or four are probably really great for you. Let me bring them up and put them in a room with you versus you seeing them barking and jumping up and down in the kennel. So it helps with adoptions, quite frankly, because they show better. You know, they're not barking. They're not jumping. They're meeting you on the end of a leash. 
uh, for the first time as a, as a nice stranger and not someone coming through the kennel and everything being noisy. So we have altered that, but we do, we do adoptions during our open hours. We do them by appointment on the days we're closed. Um, you know, we really have seen actual, an actual increase in adoptions, and I think it's from how we're handling the kennel. Now, if you'd like to participate in the conversation, 866-578-0903 or email us at soi at ideastream.org. Beth Lynn wrote in and said, when people adopt an animal, it's a lifelong commitment. If life changes, the responsibility still exists and it's up to the adopter to find a solution, including prioritizing the care and needs of that pet by owners to make adjustments in their schedules to properly care for that pet adopting additional companion animals for company, getting assistance to help with care, or doing the work themselves. Now, certainly, I know that when I I had children, you know, my dog, unfortunately, kept falling down the totem pole um, and uh, getting her out. She's super active on walks and things. You know, that's just just a must-do. But it's hard, and it can be hard. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, is there kind of an appropriate person who can handle being a pet owner? I mean, is there a danger in trying to, like, peg someone as being responsible enough and to have the time and, and wherewithal to have a pet? What would you say to that, Ken? There's a lot of different ways that shelters do this across Ohio and the nation. Um, Rescue Village's approach has been to reducing the barriers to adoption in general across all areas. So we're not doing rent checks and things like that. But like some of my fellow guests have said, we spend an awful lot of time with evaluating the dogs behaviorally. And um, so it's kind of like medical and behavior go together for us so that we can provide an owner with all the information they could possibly need about that dog's you know, medical needs going forward, because that's an actual expense these days that right. is growing more and more expensive. But then also their behavioral needs, like does it need a lot of walks? Is it going to do this? Is it going to do that? We can actually feed people information, and that really helps people make better decisions on their own. And we will steer people away from an animal. Um, but you, you don't always want to make assumptions, because we had an 83-year-old woman adopt a husky, and you would never think that that would work. Right. But that husky had had hip surgery, so it was a slow husky. So it's perfect. I mean, that dog and just sits with her. And the love forms and the bond happens and maybe the person yeah. is, you know, energized to, to be the appropriate caretaker and right. go on those walks or whatever yeah. needs to be done. Exactly. I think that's a good point. Tom wrote in asking, why are there so many pit bulls in shelters? I understand the demand may be low due to the reputation of the breed, true or not, but who's breeding so many pit bulls and why if the ma- the demand does not equate? I'm curious, Ken, I mean, excuse me, not Ken, Jonathan, the dog warden for Holmes County. Um, what are your thoughts when it comes to the number of pit bulls in shelters and maybe even stray pit bulls and uh, who's breeding them out there? Well, honestly, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to be truthful, it's, uh, that's a hard question for me to answer because we do not see that in um, small rural Holmes County as okay. much. Um, we see a lot of shepherds um, and working dogs here. And then we also see a lot of, um, you know, designer breeds like poodle type dogs. Um, so I, I, you know, I really feel like I really can't, I don't have a good answer for that one because we don't see a lot of that. Anyone want to take that question? I mean, I could jump in here, Shallon. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I would say that, and this isn't based on actual statistics, so I apologize, but at least in my world, 
we pull a lot of them from other shelters. So while we maybe don't have a lot incoming in our county specifically, they are overrun in other shelters and they're at more risk for euthanasia, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, people maybe don't want to adopt them as much. There still is a stigma around, you know, pitbulls being vicious or this or that. Um, I mean, just, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of shelters were still euthanizing them just for being pit bulls. So, you know, I think there's still a lot of education around that. I think there's still a lot of the dogs out there. Um, And then to the person who wrote in, you know, the demand isn't as high because people are fearful. And so you just see a lot of them overrun in shelters. Um, And so, and a lot of other shelters don't want to pull pit bulls in because they know they're harder to adopt where we, you know, we'll take them, but not everybody feels that way. Ken, you want to add? Well, there's another thing, Shaylin, is that there are insurance companies that insure shelters that will not allow those shelters to actually take pit bulls because they have been designated as no-no. So if you are one of those shelters that has an insurance company that says no pit bulls, then you're not going to be able to take pit bulls no matter how much you might want to. Or an adopter, for that matter. I mean, home insurance... Uh, homeowner's insurance a lot of time restricts the ability to adopt certain breeds, and so there's just a lot of barriers. Now, there is a question for uh, John, our dog warden for Holmes County, specifically an email from Tracy. Curious how the warden thinks overpopulation would slow down if Amish breeders were shut down. I can't verify whether that's a thing. So um, can you uh, enlighten me at all, John, on on that phenomenon? Sure. So um, obviously in our county, um, we do have a large population of individuals who breed um, and sell puppies. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to say. Um, I look at last year in 2023, um, when we were our fullest, I looked at the you know type of dogs, because the question came in my head, well, I looked at the type of dogs we had, and they weren't really um, breeding dogs. I mean, we had hounds, shepherds, um, not a lot of purebreds, just, you know, basically um, mixed breeds. Um, so, you know, it might drop some. I, in this year, we look at our, our uh, intake so far. We've had uh, 71 dogs come through here um, already, and we're only in, in February, uh, not even almost halfway through February here. So um, our intake, you know, just keeps rising. Um, now, part of that is we have started tackling um, some of the surrenders because we are we are really the only agency in our county that deals with dogs. Our, our Humane Society um, focuses more on cats and doesn't really dabble in, in taking care of dogs. Um, so we're the sole you know, agency that handles dogs in our county. And, and we have started tackling our uh, surrender list, um, which you know, if you look at dog wardens, we're not required to do that. However, we understand that it is a service that is important because people fall on hard times and, um, and need help. Um, so we wanna be able to be a resource for them. Um, to get them help. So, and we do have a lot of breeders who who call and try to rehome uh, rehome their dogs with us. And when we have time, we're and we're able to help. Um, we can. Um, and I think if you look at last week, we or two weeks ago, we picked up uh, three you know Wheaton Terriers, um, males roughly a year old. So I mean, you can kind of guess where where they came from. Um, you know, it, they weren't socialized the best. So you you can kind of guess where they came from. Um, you know, probably somebody's uh, kennel stock that got out and uh, never reclaimed, but they did go to a rescue. So um, may the intakes drop if, you know, um, if suddenly breeding was illegal, um, you know, possibly um, we'd have to kind of wait and see, see if that were to happen. So, 
All right, we're running out of time, but I want to ask about fostering. Uh, Donna from Medina had wrote, written, are the shelters using foster homes to raise their capacity and lower the need for euthanasia for space reasons? Um, I want to tie that into a question about how people can volunteer to help or even foster pets. I'm going to turn that to you, Jackie. Um, yeah, we do use uh, fosters. We do a foster the fuzzies, especially with the warmer winter we're having right now. We know that our cat and kitten season is going to start any time. So we get a lot of bottle babies in and then special needs we use with our fosters or, you know, some of our behavior, lack of socializations that they come from, like a breeding kennel. So fosters are always important. They definitely help us to open a space here to get another animal in need that may not be a candidate for foster. Mm -hmm. And for volunteering, we do have volunteer opportunities here. We do ask that you go through an orientation. You can call in and schedule. Um, we do ask that you're 18 years or older, or if you're under 18, that a parent or guardian accompany you while you're here. And then once you go through the orientation, you can get on our volunteer schedule. And that's anything from walking dogs to reading books to helping us with our enrichment, you know, anything like that. So we have cats and dogs. Sometimes we have other animals. It just depends what the community needs us to have at that time. Ken, with Rescue Village in Geauga County, how can people help? How can people maybe act as fosters? Foster is a huge thing of what we do. It, it is a capacity thing, but also for us because we do have a hospital, a veterinary clinic as part of our shelter. It's also a huge part of our medical care of the animals because mm. you can put animals out into foster, maybe animals that aren't quite ready for spay-neuter yet, like the bottle babies or the young dogs. So um, we also have all sorts of volunteer opportunities around events, and uh, just various tasks to the shelter, things like that. And Shallon? I would, I would say the same. I mean, our fosters are super important to us, especially with cats and kittens. I mean, we're overrun sort of all the time in Portage County, and kitten season really never ended for us. We already have babies. We already have pregnant mothers. Um, so fosters for kittens are important, but also for cats that are or dogs that are recovering from illness or surgeries or, you know, where they might need rehab or cage rest, which is hard to do at the shelter. So... Um, and then obviously volunteers for all the other things that they mentioned, the events and administrative help, walking dogs, playing with cats. Um, it, it all helps. It all matters. And Jonathan, from the um, position of a dog warden, what do you think the community can do when it comes to kind of caring for our our pets and animals that may not even be ours? <laughs> you know, it comes down to if, if, you know, if you have a dog show up at your house, you give us a call. Um, you know, from a general perspective, it's, you know, keep your dogs confined to the property under reasonable control. And, and, uh, you know, this year we, you know, ha we're having alter clinic from, uh, uh, Canton Massillon area come in, um, do a transport for us. Cause we recognize, um, with the number of, you know, unwanted litters of puppies that have been surrendered this year already, um, that it is a problem in our community and we want to be able to provide that services and, um, vet care is, you know, expensive. And then if you try to call to schedule, it's, you know, three weeks out uh, or so. So we did offer that this year and we're trying to, you know, tackle that problem. Um, um, but other than that, it's really spay and neuter your pets if, yeah, yeah, you know, if you're able to. I want to thank our panel for giving us their time today. Jonathan Beam, dog warden for Holmes County, Shallon Lowry with the Portage Animal Protection League, Jackie Godbay with the Stark County Humane Society, and Ken Clark with Rescue Village in Geauga County. Thanks to all of you for spending time with me this morning and talking about this important issue. Thank you so much. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. 
Time now for a quick break, but when we return, we'll talk to a local author who shares some similarities with the main character of her new mystery novel, including being on the autism spectrum. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. You're with the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for being with us this hour. Dr. Brandy Scalace is the editor-in-chief of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal, one of the official journals of the Institute of Medical Ethics. Scalace writes about gender politics and history, medical mysteries, and neurodiversity for outlets such as Scientific American, Wired, Crime Reads, and Medium. Scalace has written several works of nonfiction, including Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher and Death's Summer Coat, What Death and Dying Teach Us About Life and Living. In her new work of fiction, The Framed Women of Ardmore House, Scalace delivers a mystery set in England during which an American woman who inherits an English manor must solve a murder. The protagonist is neurodivergent and hyperlexic, attributes the author shares. Scalace will be interviewed on Thursday at 7 p.m. at the Cuyahoga County Public Library Orange Branch by investigative journalist, podcaster, and author James Renner. Scalace joins me now in studio to talk about her new book and more. Brandy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. If you'd like to join the conversation or ask Brandy a question, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 866-578-0903. Email us soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So you have a lot of passions. I do. It's obvious <laughs> by your bios and just Google you and nonfiction, fiction. Yeah, just, it's a big umbrella. <laughs> right, which is great. I mean, that's what we are. Passionate people, interested in all. But you are a self-admitted lover of mystery. Oh, yes. So what kind of mysteries do you gravitate to? You know, I think I cut my teeth on Sherlock Holmes, so so many people have, right? But I also loved, uh, I love Agatha Christie. I was a big fan of Hercule Poirot. And then Nijayo Marsh, also a contemporary of Agatha Christie and who wrote tons of books with just really fascinating, often very strong female characters in them as well. And I just really loved the, the noodling, you know, the actual trying to kind of solve the mystery yourself. And I liked the elements. I know those are golden age mysteries rather than, say, cozies, but I liked the element that it was it was a comfortable read. You know, and what's you a golden that. age versus a cozy? Oh, so golden age tends to be the, that era of the Agatha Christie's, right? Sure. Those people who, you know, and, and they get remade all the time. We, they, just a new one came out, I think, on, on Netflix recently um, about Hercule Poirot. But a cozy is sort of, it's a simple, comfortable read. It's something you, it's not a thriller. It's not noir, though sometimes they have elements of that in them. Even Louise Penny, I think, is sometimes considered cozy, even though her books are actually quite dark sometimes. Right. So, but yeah, something you want to cozy up and sit in front of a fire with some tea and read. Would Knives Out fall into either category? You know, I probably would. I think a lot of television mysteries, like Midsommar Murders, BBC Mystery, I think a lot of them are sort of in that camp because you you want people to come back and feel good about it and want to return again and again. Sure. And that's opposed to, say, uh, Gone Girl, which is much more in the thriller category. Sure, sure. Okay, so let's talk about your murder mystery. <laughs> it's called The Framed Women of Ardmore House. Tell us more about the title and how it 
seems to provide kind of a double meaning mm-hmm. for what the story and the plot are about. You know, we wanted to pick a title that was also going to give you some clues. And in fact, the cover of the book has some clues embedded in it, too, which is sort of exciting. Um, and, you know, this book starts off with a mystery painting that vanishes. And this painting is of a family member. Our our, our protagonist believes she's the last person alive in her family. And then she finds out that there's this whole other branch she didn't know anything about. So some this of it is, is Joe Jones. Joe Jones, yeah. So Joe some Jones. of this is her um, trying to figure out who is this person in this painting. And then shortly afterwards, the painting itself disappears. So that's one of the framed women. <laughs> right. There will be more. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. And so we just mentioned the protagonist, I guess, if you want to call mm-hmm. her, or the main character, Joe Jones, is neurodivergent and hyperlexic and definitely an outsider in mm-hmm. this English town. So how much of you is in <laughs> Jones's character? Uh, probably a lot. So we're not the same. I think Joe Jones is much cooler <laughs> than me. <laughs> She's much more interesting. But um, yes, so I myself am autistic and... I, you know, I've struggled my whole life with how do you mask that? How do you, because you're, you're sort of required by society wants you to, you know, mush that down so people don't see your, what they think is too quirky or unusual behavior. And my, my mind is just wired a little differently. And so this character, partly, I wanted to show people what it's like on the inside. So if you get her perspective and you kind of, you see why she's doing something and you think, yeah, that makes sense. Then I give you the other perspective which is the detective's perspective and you see from the outside what she's doing looks heckin weird you know <laughs> so it's a nice way of saying we're we are making sense to ourselves in here um so th- some of that but the other thing is that i've spent a lot of time in the uk I actually work for the bmj uh publishing house and i've lived at different times abroad for residencies It's very interesting. It's uncanny because it seems like it should be so much the same. We speak the same language. You know, we have a lot of the same cultural uh, understandings of things. But where you're wrong, you're really wrong. (laughs) So it can be very frustrating to, you know, you walk into all these faux pas as an American bumbling around uh, England or North Yorkshire where this takes place. So is it kind of like a fish out of water a little bit? Yes, very much so. And of course, I did this partly on purpose because being autistic or neurodivergent, you feel like a fish out of water anyway. Like so often I feel like I'm trying to translate myself into human. Um, (laughs) Sometimes I'm good at it. Sometimes I'm not so good at it. Sometimes I go to parties and ask questions about dinosaurs, you know, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's that kind of aren't we always sort of disjointed and looking for a home, looking for a place where you belong is something that isn't just a neurodivergent trait, but I think crosses over to a lot of people's experiences. I'm talking to Dr. Brandy Scalace, who just wrote a a work of fiction called The Framed Women of Ardmore House, which is a murder mystery set in England. Again, the protagonist is neurodivergent and hyperlexic, as is Dr. Brandy Scalace. <laughs> No, so I'm curious, when we're talking about the fact that she is autistic, mm-hmm. how was it for you to be able to write about the strengths and witness weaknesses that quality or, you know, that characteristic of Joe? Um when what did that bring to the table when it came to her being an amateur sleuth? Because I've got to think that there were some attributes that 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 helped her in her cause. It's true. I some I actually said this not too long ago to someone else that I feel like a lot of our favorite 
mystery solvers are on the spectrum somewhere. Sure. You know, because you you are someone who notices a lot of details and we kind of see things laterally or sideways from the direct route, but that can mean that you aren't getting some of the other interference. So Sherlock Holmes, for instance, um, particularly played this way for the television, the BBC Sherlock television show, you know, kind of goes directly from A to B and doesn't really pay attention to a lot of the social mores that maybe the rest. Wow, of, that's you know. a great point. Um, so, so some of it's that. The other, it's unusual. Usually in my life, um, I I had spent a lot of time trying not to look autistic to people, mm-hmm. and to kind of pull that in, pull your tentacles in, so to speak. And so when I wrote this book, and I was starting to flesh out what some of these quirks are I'm, yeah. I'm i'm i love words words are they're they i almost have a synesthesia about words like they have weight and taste and flavor and i just i get really hung up on them and i will repeat words and i won't forget certain things like i will i will remember stuff um that is ridiculously small and seemingly insignificant and yet it sticks in my brain so i was putting these traits in and my editor uh, said, you know, could you could you make could you make her more autistic? Could you give us more autism? And I thought that is the first time in the history of my entire life someone has told me to be more autistic. <laughs> like, you said, like, you could take you be that? Less? How'd you receive that? Um, it was like a playground. I thought, really, you want all of it? You want? Okay, here it comes. Here's, here's everything. But it, it was a wonderful, freeing sense. Sure. But also, like, definitely, it never happened before. <laughs> Most of the time, people are like, "Could you be less? You could you?" <laughs> pull that back a little. So when it comes to your own autism, I mean, where do you think you are in kind of the uh, the uh, timeline of your owning it, um, mm-hmm. feeling comfortable with it, celebrating it? I actually denied it for a long time. In fact, people, other autistic people would be like, so, you know, you're autistic too. And I'm like, shh. I think <laughs> I read a piece that you wrote, uh, yes. an essay about that. Mm-hmm. I did. I wrote about, it was, it was called Coming Out Autistic. And mm-hmm. When I, Eric Garcia, who wrote a book called We're Not Broken, I I read this book, I befriended Eric, and Eric acted as a kind of midwife for my autism, I think, to help me see that it's not only okay to be myself, it's also okay to ask for other people to give you some space, because I think I spent so much of my time trying to fit molds other people had, that I wasn't very good at asking for accommodation for myself. Um, Autism, neurodivergence, People, we, we have, it is a disability and we deserve some accommodation. But sometimes, you know, we're so trained not to seek it. And my life has really, I feel as though I have blossomed as a person since admitting it. And then I thought, well, I want other people to know it's okay too. So I came out as publicly as I could in an essay for Scientific American saying, you know, we can do this out loud. So tell me what hyperlexic means. Oh, sure. So normally hyperlexia, being hyperlexic, you would be diagnosed as a, as a small child. And I wasn't diagnosed as a small child, but it usually children, they would talk really early. They would read early. They are precocious um, with literature. They want to read all the time. I learned to speak in full sentences at eight months old. So that's one of those wow. I know and I've never stopped um, <laughs> <laughs> my poor parents so so some of it's that but the other thing about it is I read in an unusual way so I absorb text very fast I read very very quickly I actually do book reviews for the Wall Street Journal and I sometimes can I can read a book in a day and write a review Wow. Um, it's almost like I absorb whole pages of information rather than wow. reading the individual words not every hyperlexic person is like that but it is common 
And the word stick, I have a memory that there's no real, there's not really such a thing as a photographic memory, but I have a very, very sticky memory for words and things that I've read. And so that is a good thing. It also means my brain is a little crowded. (laughs) Okay, so your, your work of fiction, The Framed Women of Ardmore House, it's fun. It's a fun read. So kind of describe, give your elevator pitch of where the story goes and how you keep it fun for the reader. Sure. Well, one is there's a cast of really unusual and quirky characters in this book. And I wanted each one of them to feel real to you. So she meets this innkeeper, Tula Byrne, who is not married. She's uh, she's living with a much younger gentleman <laughs> named Ben. And she runs a pub and she's just, her, you know, she's spiky and she's Irish and she knows what she wants. And she's a lot of fun in the story. There's also a Welsh um, a Welsh antiques dealer named Gwilym who has ADHD, and he is sort of a helpless puppy love with Joe, who does not reciprocate, but you kind of have him sort of following her around as a excited puppy right. <laughs> through a lot of the book. Nice. We we have some LGBT characters. The, uh, the detective is McAdams, James McAdams. He is a divorced, mid-40s, somewhat uh, cynical, flat-footed detective. But his partner is Sheila Green. Sheila Green is an LGBTQ character. She's married to a woman named Rachel, and she is also black in this small community. And so you get a lot of these characters who are themselves have stories behind them. So Joe is navigating this brand new set of people. She's trying to befriend them in her own strange and quirky way. And actually, she finds that they're much more receptive to her than she might have thought as she's living openly as an autistic person. A lot more of these characters are willing to go, okay. And yet, like all small towns, it's a weird place. Like I lived in a small town. They're weird places. Like weird things happen. I'm not at all surprised. And people are like, oh, there's so many murders in small towns. I was like, I lived in one. I'm not that I'm not that surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I can't believe it. That happened quite uh, quickly, but uh, if you want to catch Brandy and see her conversation with James Renner, go to the Orange Branch of the Cuyahoga Library at 7 p.m. this Thursday night. She's going to be talking about the framed women of Ardmore House. I appreciate you joining us, and uh, come back on, and we'll talk about some of your future projects. Yes, thank you. It was really, really good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. To get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter now, x at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. We had so many great thoughts about lis- from listeners on yesterday's show about this year's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominations. Tom emailed us to say, among heavy metal listeners who represent rock and roll's ultimate derivative progeny, the ongoing insult has been the absence of Iron Maiden in the Hall of Fame. They invented the dual harmonized guitar sound and began the new wave of British heavy metal. Metal never gets the respect it deserves for the cultural force that it is and the loyal fan base it wields. Thanks for sending your very aptly written comment, Tom. Tomorrow on The Sound of Ideas, we'll talk to Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy about a new incentive program to connect more lawyers to rural communities that need them. And we'll talk to political analysts about the upcoming primary in March, the deadline to register to vote in this primary is one week from today so make sure to register or check your registration status if you want to participate if you missed any portion of the program find us online or listen to the sound of ideas podcast i'm jenny hamill thanks so much for listening and i will speak with you again tomorrow